0: Thank you. Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week we have a different guest. They come and talk to us about apostolates they're running, the books they've written, the music they're producing and writing. Today, my guest is a musician. He's an Englishman. John Robinson is here in this country, and he is the director of the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School in Harvard Square in Boston. Welcome to More Christianity, John.
1: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be on with
0: you. Now, a lot of our listeners are going to be unfamiliar with something that you and I both share. You're an Englishman. I was uh, privileged by the Lord's good graces to live in England, a place I call the damp lands, uh, for, <laughs> for about 25 years, first as an Anglican priest and then as a Catholic layman. And one of the great traditions in England, of course, is the great heritage of the Anglican Church, the, the great architecture, the village churches, the, the, the college uh, quadrangles and chapels, the, the great cathedrals, uh, and any visitor to England is going to go and visit these wonderful buildings. One of the great things that happens in these buildings, especially in the cathedrals and the college chapels, is what's called the English choral tradition, a wonderful, wonderful tradition of music, hymnology, great choirs. How do you think, John, that uh, musical tradition enlivens the life of these great buildings?
1: I think it's an absolutely intrinsic part of them. And in so many ways, the music is chosen over a long period of time. I think when you get to the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, you can see the tradition becoming more self-aware and looking back through history. So you start to get the absolutely amazing medieval music and Renaissance music and the the Tudor church music as well, which people start to become very interested in and start to look for original manuscripts of and to create great editions of. And I think all of that goes into making that absolutely marvelous, as you say, um, church music tradition so alive that they have this vast heritage of beautiful, beautiful music from very early days, you know, from Hildegard of Bingen right right into the 21st century. So it's a very, very rich treasury.
0: I think one of the great traditions, as you call it, a great treasury of the English church, the Anglican church, is also the great choirs that exist in the cathedrals and the collegiate churches, which we'll come back to in a moment, but also working as a parish priest in the Anglican church and now working as a parish priest in the Catholic church in the U.S., one of the big differences is that in the Church of England, they also have a great tradition of, of hymnology, of hymns. People would say to me, well, why don't Catholics sing? And I said, I think one of the reasons is they don't actually know the music. They don't know the hymns. You know, when yeah, I was an indeed. Anglican vicar, any church you went into over there in England, you could be pretty much guaranteed that the congregations all knew about at least 50 of the same hymns. Hmm. Is that, was that your experience as well?
1: Very much so. And I think it's a fascinating point you raised, people say the congregation is the only group of musicians who are expected to perform every week without ever rehearsing. Because, you know, rarely do you have a congregational hymn practice. You really expect them to turn up to church and then to be able to sing the hymns that you put before them. So having a really fine hymn tradition, such as the Anglican Church does in England, with these incredibly memorable hymns, is a very, very strong way of encouraging people to join in, because for no other reason, they're going to remember them. You know, the the situation with music literacy is not very high in any country, I don't think, for the average church-going population. But having very memorable and excellent hymns and lyrics as well is very, very important. And you can see a clear link between that quality that they have over there of so many people participating in the hymn singing in such a vigorous way, with the quality of the music and the the prose which goes with it the verse which goes with it.
0: I can probably explain a couple of other reasons for that as well to our American listeners. In England, they do not have separation of church and state. In all of the schools, it's still required if I understand it correctly to have a an act of Christian worship in school every day. Well, they don't they don't actually come up to that high standard anymore, but certainly the tradition in England over the last 30, 40, 50 years was that every school child would be in school singing terrific hymns like O Jesus I Have Promised and He Who Would Valiant Be with words by John Bunyan and a stirring hymn tune or something like Lift High the Cross or Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. All these great Anglican hymns were being sung at school. So the entire population learned the hymns. They learned the words. They learned to sing the music at school. And then when they went to confirmation or they went to church at Christmas and Easter whenever they turned up, those same hymns were being sung. And so the whole population knows them. Very different from the situation here in the United States,
1: yes, and I think I think having one of the the most important points is that the quality of that hymn tradition over there is also one which which embraces simplicity of of writing in terms of the melody. That many of those great hymns are not overly complicated, so you get a situation where you have this wonderful music which is not terribly challenging and that that really does draw people in and everybody's able to do it and it teaches young people as you were saying in schools absolutely and it teaches young organists as well another key point that that to to really bring on the next generation of organists i think hymn playing is a huge factor in that and having a having a congregation that sings well is a sort of a a way of catalyzing somebody's organ playing experience and making it making it more seem more important what what an organist does if they're accompanying something which is rousing and successful
0: Let's talk a little bit further about this. This is an interesting topic and one which will interest our our listeners here in the United States. You've probably read that book called Why Catholics Can't Sing. And there's some very interesting points made there that also in the United States, the history is so different because, first of all, the Catholic Church in the United States is an immigrant church. Catholics were coming to the United States from Italy, from Ireland, from Poland, from Germany, from all these European countries with very different musical traditions and, of course, very different languages. Therefore, the Catholic Church in the United States never really developed a shared hymn tradition the way in England it would have been developing for 500 years. Yeah, many centuries
1: have passed since people started to sing hymns in the vernacular in England. And of course, hymns were sung before the Second Vatican Council in America as well. But as you say, they were coming from so many different traditions and different languages that that there wasn't quite the same kind of gelling together, I guess, of a hymn tradition as there had been in England in the preceding centuries. It's very joyful for me, actually, to be able to spread some of the great hymns that I know from England where they're appropriate in every way, theologically as well. To be able to do them in this context and to see them catching on is a very, very wonderful thing to be able to do.
0: Well, I hope you could share with me some of the secrets of how to do that, (laughs) because I'm a parish priest in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm gradually trying to introduce some of these great Anglican hymns, which have actually found their way into the, the better of the American Catholic hymn books. But, of course, when we do try to introduce them, there are the invariable grumbles sometimes. We don't know about him, Father. <laughs> you know. And so we, we keep on trying. One of the other things yeah. that in the history here, which is interesting about singing hymns and music in, in the Catholic Church in America, of course, is that after the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, suddenly things were reversed. And it was, come on, everybody has to participate. We all have to sing. And this was the age where the popular music was largely either rock and roll or it was folk music, and Mm. therefore the folk music idiom began to be very popular in churches. Lots and lots of hymns were written, lots and lots of songs, lots and lots of praise and worship music. Some of it was not bad. Some of it was theologically sound and, and musically confident. An awful lot was not, and these have become popular, and yet confounding the problem further, in different parts of America, different songs became popular and part of the repertoire. So now Catholics travel all over America. They come to South Carolina from Kentucky and say, these aren't Catholic hymns. And we have to say, well, these are the ones we know here. How do you deal with those difficulties? That's an
1: amazing question. I think, I think really ultimately that the quality and beauty of the hymns, which are really genuinely well-conceived and well Formed and well-crafted will win out. I think ultimately you just have to be patient with it and wait for the the quality to trickle along. And I think that we're actually in in such a a fantastic age now with technology that people can see great hymn singing on the internet so easily on YouTube or wherever and say, well, hang on, that's working so well. Why don't we do something that's like that? And that way, um, ideas which is strong about hymnody starts to spread and for example the strength of the pipe organ starts to spread and people realize that something which is so powerful and rhythmic is is the best sort of support for congregational singing and the way that it's played starts to spread as well and you you can observe things like that happening perhaps faster than they could have done in the past because of people not having so much access to technology.
0: I think uh, you've got a good point there about it being hopeful. The other thing which I would encourage parishes to remember is that you get what you pay for. And if you pay for a good organist and a good instrument and a professionally trained musician, you're going to get a good music program. If you rely, um, bless their hearts, on amateurs in the parish who say that they're going to come along 15 minutes before mass starts and try to do something, don't be surprised if the result is not so good. I'm speaking with John Robinson today. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity, the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. John is an Englishman, an organist, a musician, and scholar. He's also the director of the only English-style Catholic boys' choir in America, which is the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School in Boston. It's a day school, it's a high academic yep. standard, but also the boys have to audition for the choir and there's a very yep. high musical standard as well. Isn't that correct?
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I was working at a similar school during my years in England at Cambridge at the choir school for King's College, one of the most famous choirs in the world. I was very privileged to be part of that on the inside to work with the boys and to help to teach and look after them and, and uh, be a mentor to them also worshipping in the great building of King's College Chapel in Cambridge every day. And one of the highlights of this, of course, was the service of nine lessons and carols, a great Anglican tradition in the weeks before Christmas when they actually go into the chapel and it's a combined service interspersed with carols and with readings. Very uplifting, very traditional, very beautiful. And one of the high points of this service is that it always begins with one particular very precious and beautiful Christmas carol called Once in Royal David City. And the choir would gather at the back of the chapel. Hundreds of people are waiting in hushed silence, and the organ stops. The director is standing at the back of the choir with the boys and the men. And the tradition is that all of the boys are prepared to sing this one solo verse at the beginning of Once in Royal David City, but they don't know who until the choir director points to one of them And he's given the note, and off he goes, singing this beautiful carol. We have an excerpt from your CD, Christmas in Harvard Square, which we're going to listen to right now. Excellent. That was once in Royal David City from the CD Christmas in Harvard Square, the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School. I'm talking to the director of the choir, John Robinson. John, have you got that same tradition with your choir that you you gather on Christmas Eve and single out one boy who takes a deep gulp and starts to sing like an angel? We sort of have.
1: So we, we absolutely have a Nine Lessons and Carols liturgy every Christmas Eve before the first mass of Christmas later in the evening. And at that service, a boy does sing once in Royal David City from the back of the church, followed by the candlelit procession into the um, choir stalls. And the main difference is that, unlike Stephen Cleabury, I don't know, I've never been able to get my head around the idea of training so many and then just selecting one at the very last minute. So we tend to select one in the couple of days before and to work with him on that so that he's got time to just sort of let his nerves settle and things. And it's, worked, it's always worked so far. I mean, I suppose the danger is that they might go down with an illness and say so you really want to be able to pick the one who's absolutely in the most vocal health possible and who's sounding the very, very best on the day. But there's usually, in my mind, there's usually one fairly strong contender who's going to do the best job, who I always hope is going to be fit enough to do that on the actual day.
0: Now tell us a little bit more about the choir school at St. Paul's this part of Harvard University? Is it part of the Boston Catholic community? Where, where How does that all it's fit affiliated together?
1: With, insofar as the Harvard undergraduate and graduate Catholic communities are here at St. Paul's, and their chaplains are here as well. So we, we have the undergraduate chaplain and the graduate chaplain as well, both priests in residence at St. Paul's Church. So the um, parish centre, which is attached to the school, has a lot of Catholic Harvard students organising activities in the evenings. Uh, It's a very, very vibrant and active place. But the choir school itself is the only Catholic boys' choir school in America, as you say, and therefore unique, and was founded in 1963 by Dr. Theodore Marier. The school celebrated, therefore, its 50th anniversary last year. We are, in fact, I think the youngest choir school in the world. I think we're the most recently founded real choir school that's, that's singing daily liturgy with a choir of boys and singing choral settings of things all the time. I think these are the sort of marks. And of course, having a regular school attached as well. And it's been, since I came, an incredibly exciting time of development and building, culminating in this recent recording that we've just been making that that was released so recently. That's been probably the, the seal on what we've been doing in the last few years, this recording, I would say.
0: I should explain to our listeners as well some of the background of this beautiful music produced by this boys' choir. It's very much following the English model, and the history of the choirs in England, in the cathedrals, and in the colleges is very fascinating. What happened was, in the Middle Ages, the monks would be expected to sing the Divine Office. They're chanting the Psalms, they're singing the liturgy, they're singing the music day in and day out in the great abbey churches right across Europe. And these abbey churches would need boys to sing the soprano line, as, as we would call it here. We call it the treble line with their uh, very clear, unbroken voices. And the parents of boys who wanted their boys to get an education would take them off to the local abbey, the local cathedral, where they would audition for the choir. And if they were musically talented and they had the brains, they'd get into the school and they'd get an education. They had to sort of sing for their supper. And they were so part of the monastic community, part of the collegiate community, part of the cathedral community, and this medieval tradition has carried over into the Anglican Church so that many of the colleges in Oxford and Cambridge, which of course have a medieval foundation, many of the cathedrals, which used to be abbey churches in, in the Middle Ages before the Reformation, and indeed many of the parish churches have also got this same tradition. The boys' scholarships are funded by historic endowments very often and the choir is maintained. John Robinson is my guest today on More Christianity. He is an Englishman helping this great tradition to somehow or other find roots here in the United States. When you say that the boys sing a liturgy at St. Paul's in Harvard Square, John, is that every day?
1: Yeah, there's there's the one day a week in which they, we call it the dumb day when they don't sing, just, just like in England, and it's on, on Monday, in fact, here. And every other day, they're singing at the Mass, which is at 1210, which is attended by a large range of the community, including a number of students from the university and um, parishioners as well. And it's I think that that really is what, what makes it part of that great English tradition that you were talking about. And it's interesting, people often say, well, you know, what's the tradition like in, in Europe, in mainland Europe? And In Germany and France and really it didn't survive in quite the same way. I think it would be fair to say that at this point it's mostly an English tradition where there are 30 to 40 of these choir schools in one in every major city certainly and as you say many in in Oxford and Cambridge as well doing this amazing work with Boys Voices and a couple around the world as well. I don't know if you know about St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney where there's an absolutely wonderful Catholic choir school there the music's director by Thomas Wilson, who was at Westminster Cathedral until reasonably recently and, and doing a fine job out there. So it's interesting to just sort of look at a, a bit of a revival of interest in, in the tradition and hopefully the tradition finding new roots, as you suggest.
0: The tradition is not only ancient, but modern. And one of the great things that I experienced when I was a chaplain at King's College, Cambridge, was the fact that the choir was continually commissioning new choral works. John Rutter, one of the most famous sacred music conductors in, in our age, was resident there in Cambridge doing a lot of work. Stephen Clebury was the director at King's College, Cambridge. He was commissioning classical Christian choral works from people like John Taverner, the Orthodox composer, and Avro Pert, and various others who are contemporary composers today, and therefore generating a, an awful lot of interest, not only in the English choral tradition, but in sacred music, in Christian Catholic sacred music. And you're helping to do that as well, aren't you? I think you're a composer as well as a a conductor, and we're going to listen now to one of your own compositions. Can you tell us, before we do, a little bit about your musical setting of the medieval poem, I Sing of a Maiden?
1: So it's a setting of the medieval text, I Sing of a Maiden, in which the choir, with the lower voices as well, sings the refrain Maria throughout. And then the words of the verses are given to the boys who sing a melody which increases in its height throughout. So the the music gets higher, but is then sort of tethered back by the refrain of the lower voices singing Maria over and over again.
0: We're going to listen to some of that right now. This is the musical setting I Sing of a Maiden by John Robinson, our guest today. That's a wonderful taste of this new album, which is out, Christmas in Harvard Square, in which John Robinson, our guest on More Christianity Today, conducts the boys of St. Paul's Choir School in Harvard Square, a unique Catholic institution, nothing like it anywhere else in America, where the English choral tradition is being imported into the Catholic Church in America and trying to find roots. I encourage you to get a copy of Christmas in Harvard Square. John, here are these boys who are ordinary, rough-and-tumble kids, when I was at King's College, Cambridge, these boys would be out playing rugby, having scuffed knees and bloody noses and ears bent out of shape, and and they would come in and have a quick shower, and the next thing you knew, they were in their choir robes and their surplices, and they were singing like angels. What's the life there like at uh, St. Paul's Choir School? Is it much the same?
1: Very much the same, yes. They are, as you say, absolutely normal boys in, in all These respects, so they love playing dodgeball and basketball and all the things we do because we're in the middle of the city center here it's difficult for them to get out into the sports field so what we actually do is to have sports in the gymnasium in the school and then many of the parents have them signed up to numerous after-school soccer and baseball and all these sorts of things that boys do I think they really relish the contrast between that very physical life that they all have and also their sort of refinement and discipline and focus and concentration that have to happen in order for them to sing this kind of music.
0: I can remember when I was at King's College in Cambridge, one night hearing the strains of Rachmaninoff's piano concerto being played, and I thought, where's this coming from? And I went down and there was a 12-year-old boy pounding out this most difficult uh, musical piece. The talent of, of these kids is extraordinary. When you realize th- their accomplishment, you also step back in awe and say, maybe we're expecting too little of our kids. Is that one of the experiences you have?
1: Very much so. I think that one of the great things you realize when you work with children is that where you raise the bar, they follow. So if you expect great things of them musically or academically, they're far more likely to achieve them. Always amaze one about how quickly they develop and developing in ways one wasn't expecting them to.
0: I'm talking to John Robinson. He's a composer, musician, conductor of the Boys of St. Paul's Choir School in Harvard Square. John, can you tell us very briefly something about our third excerpt from Christmas in Harvard Square, the Carol O' Magnum Mysterium?
1: This is one of those absolutely exquisite pieces by Victoria, the Renaissance composer of polyphony, which perhaps gives us something of a taste of the meaning of Christmas as it would have been construed in previous centuries, where it's not so much about baubles on Christmas trees and mistletoe and good cheer and good humor. There's just this absolutely amazing manifestation of the mystery of the incarnation. It's a piece in four parts for boys' choir with men, of course, as well, with altos, tenors and basses. And it's just the most beautiful counterpoint you'll hear.
0: Thank you. That was O Magnum Mysterium, sung by the boys and the men of St. Paul's Choir School in Harvard Square. That's all we have time for. I recommend this beautiful and inspiring CD. Why not join in with the spirit of Christmas? Why not join in with the spirit of wonderful, sacred music by connecting with this CD, Christmas in Harvard Square, the boys of St. Paul's Choir School. Today, their conductor was my guest, an Englishman who's here in the United States, trying to help us learn more about the beauties of sacred music in the tradition of England. Now, tell our listeners where they can go to obtain this beautiful CD.
1: The best place you can go is to our our choir school website, www.stpaulchoirschool.com, because if you do that, more of the royalties and the proceeds will go to the choir school, thanks to the great generosity of the wonderful producers, Kevin and Monica Fitzgibbons, But it's also available from their website at aimhigherrecordings.com, and there's much more information there about other places. It can be downloaded, iTunes, Amazon. It's also available in Barnes & Noble as well.
0: John Robinson, thank you for being my guest today on More Christianity.
1: Thank you very much, Father.